57. Psalm 57 can be found on page 894 in your pew Bibles. read the entire psalm. For the director of music, to the tune of Do Not Destroy, of David, a miktam, when he had fled from Saul into the cave. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, for in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends his love and his faithfulness. I am in the midst of lions. I lie among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. This is the word of our God. May he bless it to us this morning. Let's pray for his blessing right now. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to your people through it. We pray that as we examine Psalm 57 this morning, that you would reveal yourself to us afresh, that we might know more fully who you are and what you have done for us in Christ. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. People of God, have you ever played out doomsday scenarios in your head? Maybe I'm a little bit weird in this, but I used to daydream all the time when I was younger about what I would do if bad guys suddenly burst into the room and I had to flee, I had to take off. I'd make up these really elaborate scenarios where I'd jump out the window of my house and then I'd walk along the side of the house and I'd sneak into the barn, I'd walk through the cows trying to not be seen, and then I'd go into the cornfield and hope it was late enough in the summer that the corn was tall enough that I could sneak through there and then finally, finally make it up to the woods, up on the hill, where I figured I'd be safe. No matter where I started out these scenarios in my head, whether at home or at school or wherever I was, I always ended up in the woods. For some reason or other, that was my place of refuge. Because when troubles come, When attacks 
come, whether imaginary like mine or very, very real. You need a place of refuge. In our psalm this morning, we see this quite clearly. David, the psalmist, was facing a lot of troubles. He had enemies surrounding him at every turn, and so he needed a place of refuge. And this place of refuge wasn't the woods, nor was it the cave in which David was hiding. No, the refuge for David was the Lord. He was the one to whom David could flee, where where he could go when things got tough. And because of that refuge, because of that deliverance that David found in the Lord, David glorified the Lord. And he invites us all to do the same. The big idea for our passage is very simple this morning. It's glorify the Lord, your refuge. And we'll see this in both halves of the psalm. First, when you need deliverance, verses 1 through 5. And second, when you've received deliverance, verses 6 through 11. So first, when you need deliverance. And David really needed deliverance, didn't he? Right, this psalm begins with a very urgent plea. He says, have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me. And that repetition there, he repeats that phrase, that repetition shows how serious, how demanding, how urgent this need is in his life. Right? It's the first thing off his lips. It's the most urgent thing in his life right now. He needs the mercy of God, this mercy of God that takes the form of refuge, a safe place. For in you, my soul takes refuge. That's what he says. He needs a a safe place. According to that superscription of the psalm that we read before verse 1, this psalm was written by David when he was on the run from Saul. And you can read about that in the book of 1 Samuel. Right? You know the story. Saul was constantly pursuing David, chasing after him, making David be on the run. And when you're on the run, when you're fleeing for your life, running this way and that way, going here and there, trying, trying to escape, you need a place to rest, to stop and catch your breath and, and wait for that danger to pass by. This is what David needs, and he finds this refuge in the Lord. The language at the end of verse 1 really drives this point home. It says, I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings. That's the picture David uses to describe this refuge. It's, It's that of a mother bird holding out her wings so that her fragile, helpless little chicks can be safe. They can hide under her wings. There's protection here. From outside threats, like predators, or storms, or maybe just even frightening noises. Whatever these threats are, the chicks are safe under their mother's wings. So that's where they run to. Just like a mother, just like a young child flees to the arms of her mother when she's scared. There's safety here. There's safety. And and that's what David feels when he goes to the Lord. There's safety here in which he can rest until the storms of destruction pass by, till till this danger is over. It's an urgent plea for refuge that David brings. But as he brings this request, even though it's urgent, maybe even frantic, as he brings this request, there's a confidence that David has. 
He's certain that he will find this refuge in the Lord. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me. And, this, and we'll see together this confidence that he has. He says, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends his love and his faithfulness. Do you feel that confidence? There's no question here of if God will save me. No, God sends it. God is saving me. Even as David is making this request, he is confident that the Lord is going to protect him. God will do these things. David is certain of it. And he's certain of it because of who God is. In these verses, David calls, God, David calls the Lord God Most High. And where does he say that God Most High is? He's in heaven. Right? He's, he's in heaven. He's all-powerful. He's omnipotent. He's sovereign over everything, including David's situation. And so David knows that he can trust in the Lord. And notice, too, how God is going to help David. He's going to send from heaven two things, his love and his faithfulness, together forming this covenant love, which he has showed David in the past and which he is going to show David now. God is going to send these two attributes of his to come to David's rescue. They're going to be, in one sense, the ambassadors of the Lord, coming to David, helping him out in his time of need with that full authority of the king from where they came. This is David's hope in the midst of his oppressors. And make no mistake, these oppressors are frightening. Just look at how they're described in verse 4. I am in the midst of lions. I lie among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. These are not people you hang out with for fun. These aren't people you call up to watch the game with you on Saturday. No, no, you don't. These are terrifying images, right? You don't want to hang out with these people. It's no wonder that David is seeking refuge. He's in the midst of lions. Those fierce predators who prowl around, looking around for their prey. And when they find them, they sneak up on them and they pounce, sneering them. It's terrifying. And he lies down among ravenous beasts. It's unclear in the Hebrew what these beasts are or what what this word is referring to, but they don't sound very nice, do they? They sound terrifying. And then these animal images become more clear when they transition to human images. People whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are swords. Weapons coming out of their mouths. And some commentators suggest that this is talking about the words of these oppressors. That these these people are hurting David with their words, and there might be some truth there. But I think when we remember David's situation, when we keep in mind that he's fleeing from Saul and these men who want to kill him, when we remember that, these words just really point to that picture of the danger that David faces. Right? These are dangerous people. They're stalking him like lions. Wherever they go, these weapons are always ready, flashing around like the gnashing, snarling teeth of lions. David is being surrounded by an ever-present threat. And yet, in the midst of all of this, David pauses. 
He doesn't let this description of his enemies overwhelm him. Instead, it makes him astutely aware of his need for refuge. All of these dangerous people, they've burst into the room. David needs to flee, and where is he going to go? To the Lord. David seeks refuge in the Lord, and as he does so, he glorifies the Lord. That's what he does in verse 5. Immediately after describing those enemies in verse 4, he stops and proclaims, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. When he needs deliverance, he glorifies the Lord, his refuge. Now let's think for a moment about this desire for God's glory. And we could simply think about it as a desire for the glory that God deserves, right? He is God most high. He is above the heavens. He's above the earth, and he deserves that kind of glory. Absolutely he does. That's a good thought. That's a nice thought, but but we need to think about this in terms of the psalmist's situation. This verse is not isolated. It's in the midst of a distressing situation. We've seen that in verse 4. We'll see it again in verse 6. The psalmist is in a distressing situation. Here we have a follower of God who's in danger of being swallowed up by his enemies. If he is consumed by these lions, if he's swept away by the storm of destruction, what is that going to say about his God? And so I think we see here a plea, a prayer by David that serves a dual purpose. The psalmist is asking the Lord to be exalted and glorified, and he's asking that that glorification take place through the very act of delivering him. God will get glory by saving him. And that's David's plea here. May you be exalted, God, as you save me. Both aspects are at play here, deliverance and glorification. In the midst of his trials, his focus isn't simply on escaping, but it's so much more than that. It's on the glory of God. Now perhaps that reminds you of another who in the midst of intense persecution, surrounded by circling enemies who were closing in for the kill, who in the midst of all of that was not concerned for himself, but was concerned with the glory of God. In John 12, Jesus says that his soul was troubled. He's got all these enemies around him coming in with weapons flashing. His soul is troubled, and yet he's not focused on escaping from what lies ahead of him. Instead, at that point, he says that his goal, his focus, the very purpose for why he's come is this, to glorify the Lord, to glorify the name of the Father. In the midst of his trials, Jesus did not shrink back from his enemies, but rather he faced them head on so that the Father would be glorified through him. And in fact, that this same dual purpose of Psalm 57. It takes place in Jesus' life too. That the Father, through Jesus' trials and his suffering and his death, would be glorified, yes. And then, not so that Jesus would be saved, but so that we might be saved through him. Deliverance for us and glory for God occurring at the same time at the cross. In the deliverance that God provided for his people through Jesus, God is exalted above the heavens, and his glory is over all the earth. That's the wondrous truth of the gospel, and that's the hope that we have when we need deliverance. 
So brothers and sisters, when you need deliverance from sin, glorify the Lord your refuge. When your sin is circling around you like hungry lions, when your sin lies around you like ravenous beasts, when you're surrounded by its threat, the only refuge to which you can flee is the Lord. You're not going to find safety in the woods. You're not going to find safety in a cave. You're only going to find it in the Lord. And so I urge you, run to him. Come to Jesus. Find this salvation that can be found in his name alone. And in doing so, you will find refuge. Sure, sweet refuge. And you will also glorify the Lord, your refuge. And people of God, when you need deliverance from other trials in your life, glorify the Lord, your refuge. He may not spare you of your trials. Remember, David was still pursued by Saul. He still had these enemies around him. God may not remove all the trials from your life, but you can still run to him to find refuge, to find safety and protection under the shadow of his merciful wings. So whatever trials you're facing this morning, whether in your relationships or your health, in your labors, whatever trials you're facing, when you need deliverance, Glorify the Lord your refuge. May your tongue find the strength to say, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. When you need deliverance, glorify the Lord your refuge. And when you receive it, when you receive this wondrous wondrous deliverance from sin or from your trials, glorify the Lord your refuge. This is what we see as we move to the second half of the psalm. After this refrain of verse 5, the psalmist returns to describing his enemies. In verse 6, he now turns to the realm of hunting. He says this, "They, They spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path. These enemies are hunting him like an animal. He's their prey, so they're setting traps for him. A net spread low down on the ground, right in the midst of his path hoping to snatch him up when he steps into it. And a pit dug in the ground, its, its mouth yawning, opening, waiting to grab the psalmist, waiting to swallow him up when he falls into it. And the effects that these traps have on the psalmist, it just weighs on him. Right? He says, my soul was bowed down. I was bowed down in distress. His enemies are hunting him. And he's just sinking under this oppression. It doesn't look good. But then he receives deliverance. He receives surprising, shocking deliverance. Verse 6 is set up as pairs of lines, and you would expect them to follow a certain rhythm, kind of parallel to each other. You'd expect something like this. They spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path. My heart is downcast. That's, That's kind of what you would expect. But no, this last line changes. It throws a surprise at us. They, they spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they themselves have fallen into it. Shocking, surprising deliverance. The Lord, the refuge of the psalmist, has delivered him from his enemies. And brothers and sisters, that's just a shadow of the surprising deliverance that the Lord, our refuge, provided us 
Right? We were lost in sin. We were bowed down under the weight of our sin. And our Savior, the one who came to this earth, he was being hunted by evil men. They set a net for his steps. They, they dug a pit in his way. His soul was bowed down, and it looked like there was no hope. If you were there at Calvary that day, it would have looked like these hunters had captured their prey. That Jesus was bowed down to death and that there would be no hope to come out of this situation. But just like this fourth line of verse 6, at the very end, when it was least expected, surprising deliverance was provided. The hunters fell into the very trap that they had laid. They thought that they were killing Jesus. But as they did that, God actually provided life to all those who would believe in Jesus. And he confirmed that by raising Jesus from the dead. A hopeless situation turned to joy. And it's in light of this surprising deliverance that the psalmist glorifies the Lord his refuge. He starts in verse 7, very slowly and quietly. He says, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. His heart, his inmost being is steadfast. That's quite a change from verse 1, isn't it? At the start of this psalm, David was running from his enemies. He's going this way and that way. He's looking for refuge. Where's he going to go? But now, his heart is steadfast. Because he's found this refuge. He's safe in the Lord. And he's seen this deliverance of the Lord. And so his heart is steadfast. It's unwavering. It's resolute. It's calm. And in this calmness, praise starts to build. At the end of verse 7, going into verse 8, he says, I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. Notice how this praise just begins to build. Right? He starts in his heart. His heart is steadfast, and there he resolves to sing and make music, to praise the God of his salvation. He starts with himself. Awake my soul, his inmost being, all that he is. It's, it's almost as if his heart is asleep. And he needs to rouse it, to, to wake it up so it can start praising. But it's not just his heart. He also employs some musical instruments. The harp and the lyre. Awake, O oh harp. Awake, O oh lyre. Come on, you guys, join with me. Right, we've got some praising to do. We're going to sing together, praising the Lord for his deliverance. And then it just continues to build with that curious phrase, I will awaken the dawn. The image we get here is of the psalmist in the middle of the night, pitch black outside, waiting for the morning to come, for the sun to rise, waiting to praise the Lord as the sun rises. And so he's got to wake it up. There's almost an impatience here, right? waiting for the dawn. And if you've ever worked overnight, you kind of have a glimpse of that impatience for the dawn. I was a security guard for a while, working from 7 at night to 7 in the morning. And in the, those early morning hours, you are just waiting for that sun to rise so your shift can be over. I had the same thing milking cows. We'd start at 2 in the morning, and by 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, you're like, all right, come on, sun, let's rise. Let's get this day going so I can go back to bed. But the psalmist 
He wants the sun to come up, but he doesn't want it to come up so he can go back to bed. No, he wants it to come so he can praise God, so he can glorify the Lord, his refuge. First with his heart, then with the harp and lyre, then with the dawn, and then going into verse 9, then with the nations. That's what he says. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. We see the circle of praise growing wider and wider. Not just David. Not just the band of followers that he's with. Not just Israel, but to the nations. Going beyond the horizon. David wants the nations to join in with him as he praises the Lord as refuge. And here's, there's just a hint of the fullness of the picture of Genesis 22 where, where God tells Abraham that all the nations on earth will be blessed through his offspring. And his offspring, David, here invites these nations to join with him in praise, to praise God for what he has done. We see this praise continue to build and grow as David invites more and more to join with him as he glorifies the Lord. And this is really a proper response to the deliverance that God provides. To praise him in your own hearts, yes. But also just to let that praise stream forth from you. To go, to go out so that others join with you as you praise the Lord for what he's done for you. But if you're anything like me, you'll find that it's kind of difficult to do. Right? It's kind of easier to keep our praise to ourselves. To praise the Lord for what he's done for us in our own hearts. And then that's about as far as it goes. Now we do join here together on Sunday mornings in corporate worship. And this is wonderful. It's great to join with the saints of the Lord to praise the Lord for what he's done for us. But at the same time, it can also be kind of an anonymous thing. Where we're just a part of a bigger body. And it's, we can be kind of anonymous in that. But to praise God for what he's done in our lives with all of those around us, for what he's done specifically in our lives, I think we can get kind of timid about that. I mean, in one sense, it's almost easier to share our prayer requests with each other than our praises. Please pray for my Aunt Millie because she has cancer. Please pray that my nephew comes to Christ. And these are good requests. We should share our requests with each other. We absolutely should. But we also need to share our praise. We can't keep it to ourselves. Like the psalmist, we should glorify the Lord our refuge in increasingly widening circles and not being ashamed about it. In our hearts, in our families, in our churches, in our workplaces, in the nations. Hey, everyone, look at what the Lord has done for me. He's delivered me from sin. He's set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He has provided me a place of refuge. Come, praise him with me in ever-widening circles of praise in which all those around us are caught up with us as we glorify the Lord, our refuge. And this ever-widening circle of praise, it doesn't even stop with the nations. No, it extends to the very edges of creation. That's where the psalmist goes in verses 10 and 11. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Here we have that refrain again. We saw it in verse 5, where the psalmist was in the middle of his distress. And there, it was that dual purpose plea, right? Where he asked God to be exalted as he himself was delivered. 
Well, here it is again, once the psalmist has been delivered. When he needed deliverance, he glorified the Lord, and now here, now that he's received deliverance, David glorifies the Lord, his refuge. This praise didn't stop when he was rescued from his enemies. No, it continued on. Now, because of the fact that he had tasted this deliverance from his enemies, it happened in the past, and his praise continues even now. I'm reminded of that account in Luke 17, when Jesus heals the ten lepers. Right As he's walking through this village, these ten lepers come up to him. They need deliverance from their affliction, and they're glorifying him. They're saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Just like the beginning of our psalm. And what does Jesus do? He heals them. Right? He, he heals them. He gives them deliverance from this affliction. But for nine of those lepers, that's where the praise stops. They praise Jesus. They got what they wanted. Then they're done. That's it. But, but that tenth leper, the one who went back to Jesus, he had the proper response. Right? After he was healed, his praise was just beginning he praises God with a loud voice. He, he falls down at Jesus' feet, thanking him. This leper was continuing to praise God for his past deliverance. And that's what this psalmist is doing. He's experienced God's deliverance in the past, and he continues to praise God for it. It's still ringing forth from his lips into the nations, into the whole creation, the heavens and the earth. And this praise is going to continue on throughout the ages. As we've looked at this ever-widening circle of praise, you almost get the picture of a rock thrown into a lake and, and the ripples that go out from it. It started with the psalmist's heart, right? It went out to the harp and lyre, and the praise kept going out to the dawn, to the nations, to the very edges of creation, heaven and earth. Like the ripples on a pond, his praise kept going out. But that's an imperfect analogy, because when you throw a rock into a pond, they only go so far. They'll, they'll come up to the bank and they'll stop there. Or, or they'll just fade out over time. But either way, these ripples of a pond are going to stop. Well, people of God, God's praise is never going to stop. It may start with David's heart. It may start with our hearts. But God's praise is going to keep expanding. It's never going to stop. Throughout all eternity, God will get glory for the deliverance that he has provided for his people in Christ. Think Revelation 19, that great marriage supper of the Lamb. John hears the voice of a great multitude crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. God is going to get the glory that he deserves forever and ever. His glory, this praise of God is never going to end. He will be exalted above the heavens, even the new heavens. And his glory will be over all the earth, even the new earth. It's never going to end. And so let's start right now. Right now, as we need deliverance. Right now, as we have received deliverance in Christ. Let's glorify the Lord, our refuge. Let's let his praise start in our hearts and work out from us so that the entire creation joins together in praising our wonderful God of refuge. May he be exalted above the heavens and may his glory be over all the earth. Amen.
Let's pray. O Lord, may you be exalted above the heavens. And may your glory be over all the earth. Lord, we thank you for being our refuge, for being the one to whom we can flee for deliverance. Lord, we pray that you would help us do so in our times of need, that we might not be fooled by the guise of self-dependence, but that we would continually rest in you as our place of refuge. And we pray that your praise would constantly go out from us, wherever we are, so that we might join our voices with the angels and with all of your saints, forever praising your name. Let us rejoice and exalt and give you the glory both now and forevermore. Amen. People of God, our song of response will be number three.